Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Right now, please welcome from New York. Marshall Auerbach, Research Associate at Levy Economics Institute. I mean, I, I, I do believe that the, the tax code is, has become an instrument in, in some ways of political corruption and um, where every single lobbyist likes to slip in his own favorite loophole. And I think if we can eliminate those, that's a very, very good thing. So I do actually strongly think that it would be fantastic to have a tax code uh, which is uh, the size of a, of a postage stamp, like say you have in, in Hong Kong, where you just punch in a number, whether that be 0 0.25, 0 0.15, uh, 0.1, et cetera. That, that I would love to do that. My concern, however, is that, um, as you well know, uh, Washington is uh, full of lobbyists, and uh, they all have their uh, special little uh, interests that they want to safeguard. So I'm highly skeptical that you will get a tax code as simplified as Trump would aspire to. Well, let's let's stay on on the income tax specifically, Marshall. You call out the deficit hawks. Why? Well, because I, I think if you want to have uh, tax reform. That's fine, but you've got a fundamental split within, well, actually, not just the GOP, but I think both parties. There is a concern that um, if you are introducing some sort of fiscal expansion, say tax cuts, that somehow that's got to be revenue neutral, that you've got to offset that with some sort of uh, cuts in, in, in expenditure. And I think that's a silly way to, to go about it, because you obviously can't um, discuss in advance or determine in advance what the impact is going to be of certain tax cuts or certain um, um, uh, expenditure cuts. So I would prefer that they get away from that debate and just focus on on um, fiscal expansion and also focus on getting a, a, a simplified tax cut. But you have, as I say, you do have this very, very strong uh, deficit hawk wing in both parties, uh, especially within the Republican Party. Uh, they will want to use this right. um, effort to, say, cut Social Security yeah. and, and Medicare, and that's going to be highly problematic. Look, the, the, what got us into this mess and what normally gets us into uh, the, the, these types of messes is huge buildups of private uh, financial debt, not public debt. Uh, it's not public profligacy that caused the, the problems that we had in 2008. And the key difference between public debt and private debt is that uh, when you have private debt, there is a, a, a sustainability issue. Uh, if you're a businessman or a household, you have to defer consumption or investment uh, to pay off that debt. If you're a government with a fully sovereign currency, and by that I mean, say, a country that issues its own free-floating currency uh, that is non-convertible, and that's not the case in the Eurozone, then you can always create the, the dollars needed to uh, extinguish your liabilities. Now, people will say that's inflationary, ultimately, and it can be, but inflation is a very, very different uh, issue from uh, fiscal sustainability or, or solvency. And fighting for the anti-gold side, or at least the more gold-neutral side, we have Marshall Arabak, the wonderful Mr. Marshall, and Colin Roche right behind me. Now, Marshall is a director at the Institute for New Economic Thinking and a former fund manager with over 20 years of experience in investment management, including a stint managing a gold fund. So he definitely knows what he's talking about. And well, because um, it, it's the case that if you are dealing under a gold standard system, then obviously uh, your uh, fiscal and, and monetary officials have limited scope for 
manipulating policy or um, expanding uh, um, stimulus in the event that you have a huge uh, exogenous shock like we had in the 1930s and indeed that we had during most of the 19, a lot of the 19th century. You had five depressions during the onset of the gold standard. And in fact, uh, it was only after uh, FDR uh, devalued the dollar against gold, effectively severed the link, that he was able to implement some of the, uh, the, the stimulus that became the basis for the, the, the New Deal. European companies ostensibly benefit from a relatively weak euro. So Edward first asked Marshall for his take on European equities right now, and here's what he had to say. Well, yeah, the, funnily enough, the, the data has been a little bit better, and I think it's precisely as you uh, suggested that you know you have a uh, um, you know you've had a weak euro for a long period of time. Um, the biggest beneficiary of that, of course, has been Germany. Um, because uh, Germany is the most competitive and dominant exporter in Europe. But I, I think it's, it's now starting to spread to um, other uh, areas, which have been so economically depressed for so long that you know, if you just take your foot off the, uh, the, uh, if, uh, of the fiscal break for a minute and just let uh, fiscal policy breathe a little bit, as seems to be the case in places like Spain, then you, know, you get some re recovery. So th there's, there's an element of that. Of course, um, in the case of Germany, I believe some of the data I've seen recently has suggested uh, a, a little bit more uh, weakness, and that's the problem uh, when you um, rely on, on global growth uh, uh, for, for your export machine. That you know, if you have a very substantial decline in places like China, that's really going to hurt uh, capital goods exporters like Germany. So you might start seeing that manifesting itself more in the months ahead. In 2002, George Soros penned the book On Globalization. In it, he describes an unwitting coalition that exists between market fundamentalists on the far right and anti-globalization activists on the far left. Sounds a bit like the current arguments of horseshoe theory, doesn't it? Soros further argues that markets are amoral, meaning they are neither moral or immoral. They simply allow people to act in accordance with their self-interest. Yet is that true? Are economists truly remaining neutral when they make decisions that have actual moral implications in the real world? Are there suppressed premises that are not being discussed? And what kind of obligations and responsibilities do we bear because of them? The notion that markets are amoral and that economics is a descriptive practice is a modern belief. During the Enlightenment period, when Adam Smith penned The Wealth of Nations, economic and moral philosophy were joined at the hip. Smith believed that agents weren't solely driven by self-interest. Agents are also capable of feeling empathy, and they do feel solidarity with each other. In other words, the butcher, baker, and brewer may be motivated by self-interest when providing you with their dinner, but when the butcher, baker, or brewer jumps into a lake to save you from drowning, it's out of sheer benevolence. Moreover, Smith was positive that the actions of the merchant and manufacturing classes were having a devastating effect on the global south and in India. In December of 1991, Lawrence Summers, who at that time was the World Bank's chief economist, sent out a memo arguing that the United States and other wealthy nations should be deporting their dirty industries to the less developed countries. The main reason he gave was that it would be more economically efficient. Yet the question I propose is this. 
Are there embedded moral choices in positive economics? Or is it simply about making the math work? Today we will be discussing these issues with our guest Marshall Auerbach. He is a fellow at the Levi Institute of Economics and a global portfolio strategist for Madison Street Partners. Welcome, Marshall. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me, Tina. It's good to be with you. So let's talk a little bit about the piece that you just published in Alternate. I thought it was great, and I love Thank that uh, Senator Crapo. <laughs> yeah, that was the gift that keeps on giving. Um, I mean, I, I, I thought it was uh, from The Onion originally when I saw that he was a sponsor. But, um, you know, sometimes you gotta, you, you're, you're just given the material, and it makes life very, very right. easy to, uh, to conduct, write a good piece. They're talking about uh, undoing some of the reforms that were uh, in Dodd-Frank. One of them is raising the asset size from $50 billion to $250 billion, which is an enormous change. The, the problem with um, raising the asset limit so much uh, is that you um, take a lot of uh, systemically important banks out of, the, out of the regulatory scrutiny, or at least the most strict kind of regulatory scrutiny. And um, I mentioned three in the article, um, Credit Suisse, um, uh, Deutsche Bank uh, being, being two of them. Deutsche Bank, in particular, is is um, a very very significant bank because it is a one of the, it has one of the largest um, derivatives position of any major bank. It is um, deemed by the IMF to be globally systemic. It has trillions of dollars of um, off balance sheet uh, exposure, and right. um, it, it's it's been assessed billions in fines. Uh, it's been guilty of money laundering offenses, um, yeah. and it's also uh, was involved in LIBOR, which is you know probably the greatest financial scandal of the last 20 years. Um, so this bank, um, if anything, merits much more regulatory scrutiny. And um, and 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 as Elizabeth Warren has uh, pointed out, Senator Warren, about um, 25 of the 38 largest banks are are going to be taken out of the, the most um, strict regulatory ambit of Dodd Frank by virtue of this this minor tweak, as they call it, and that's um, uh, in itself um, crazy. But um, it's even crazier when you think that these are banks that have been serial violators of U.S. banking laws, which, if anything, you would think would um, would merit tougher scrutiny, not less. And do- and let's be clear, um, Dodd Frank in itself is a, is a pretty poor excuse for bank uh, regulation when you compare it to, say, what was introduced in the right, aftermath right. of the, the Great Depression. So, um, it's, it's yeah. you know, we, we've gone from a, a pretty low baseline and, and, and virtually uh, are, are gutting it to uh, with the point where it's meaningless. Yeah, no, and I think we should be going in the other direction. What happened in yeah, 2008, I do too. you almost had an un- unregulated insurance market that had been going on for four or five years, and they were just passing the toxic football, so to speak. And everybody in, that was involved knew eventually that this thing would blow up in their faces, but they just continued on and on. There was a few people who were nobly against it, Brooksley Bourne uh, being someone who um, right. I think covered itself in glory, and Sheila Bear. It's actually, the women on the whole have done very, very well on this. It seems to be the men that screw things up, So, um, with, with, other, with, with Hillary Clinton perhaps being the conspicuous exception. But um, it, it, it is uh, very striking um, that we didn't get... Um, we didn't get more done, and we had we had a chance uh, to paraphrase Rahm Emanuel. You know, we let a good crisis go to waste in 2008. Interesting coming from him because he usually sides with the neoliberals, but yeah, sometimes he gets it right. Um, yeah, like the stop clock. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like don't think he he basically <laughs> wants to just, he wanted to get something done. Um, yeah. But the point was that if you go back to that context. Um, Banks like Bank of America and City could have easily been um, 
taken over by the government via the existing mm-hmm. FDIC uh, rules and regulations, and they could have been right. downsized, and that would have been the, that should have been the way they they went. But um, um, you know, Tim Geithner and um, Hank Paulson before him clearly didn't want to go that route for obvious reasons. No, yeah, I mean they might as well. This is this is the worst part of regulatory capture. These these guys are part of the banking industry, and they're not interested yeah. in protecting consumers or protecting the systemic uh, viability of our system. They're interested in protecting the banks themselves. That's that's their main object, and they're very they do very well at that. You brought yeah. up this thing about money laundering, and actually, I wanted to ask you a question. I'm going to come forward, and we'll come back to the article. HSBC was laundering money for drug cartels, um, yep. gangsters yep. and the like, on a, on a very large scale a few years back. And I yes. thought that this was the right time to really do something and punish these folks for what they were doing. And they came back, the uh, Department of Justice came back with this absolutely ridiculous fine that was maybe worth five weeks of profit, which is a drop in the yes. bucket for the bank, and no arrest. That's right. Well, no, uh, no one's actually uh, been arrested for this um, for, for what happened in 2008, which I think is, is part of the source of the anger in the electorate. And I, I think one of the reasons why uh, we ultimately had someone like uh, Trump uh, get, get elected. Uh, in, uh, we, yeah. we, we basically, uh, under the savings and loan crisis, uh, we, we actually had a significant number of executives who went to, to jail. And um, right. uh, there, there was a very, very robust um, in, in enforcement. But as you say, HSBC was not only um, guilty of... Um, civil activity, involved in criminal activities, and some people should have right. gone to, to, to jail. Uh, there was pressure placed on the Department of Justice by uh, the Geithner Treasury, um, the, the feeling being that if you start prosecuting these guys, you risk creating another financial crisis. You know, I would contend that by allowing the bad eggs to remain in the system, you create the conditions for the next crisis. I mean, at, at, at some point, the rule of law has to mean something, um, and if you don't have that, then you know, what they call Gresham's Law comes into play, which is that bad money mm-hmm. drives are good. And that's exactly what's happening now again. Yeah, I agree. It's a moral hazard because now at the end of the day, these folks know no matter what they do, the taxpayer will show up and correct it. They will bail them out. They will backstop the problem and they'll get away with it. So there's, yes, there's that's right. No and the other important factor in, in related to that is, and, 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 and this is something that the Democrats who keep saying they want to help the poor community banks uh, are to recognize, in effect, um, by creating this um, too-big-to-fail phenomenon, you are indirectly subsidizing these larger banks um, and, mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, making it much easier for um, or, or giving perverse incentives for in de- depositors to take their money out of those banks and go into um, the likes of City or Chase because they, they rationally see that, wow, these banks um, are going to be ba- backed up by the government come hell or high water. So I'm going to mm-hmm. put my money with them. And in fact, one of the perverse byproducts of the Dodd-Frank Act is that banking concentration in the five largest banks has, has increased, not decreased, uh, since its inception. So let's talk a little bit about Elizabeth Warren. Uh, she has yep. been a vigorous fighter of bankster bad behavior and is uh, pretty critical of this bill that you discuss yep. in your article. Yet in the 2016 primary, she endorsed Hillary Clinton, who is a big recipient of Wall Street money and who has been a vigorous defender of Wall Street. This seemed very hypocritical to me, and I almost feel like she lost some credibility when she did this. What do you think her motivation was? Yeah, <clears throat> I, you know, I, I was kind of disappointed as well, but I, I guess she made the calculation that 
that Hillary was likely to be the nominee, nominee um, and that it made little sense to burn her bridges with um, that um, part of the party, um, and that if she didn't win, uh, that she would uh, at least have a, a, a bastion of, of support come 2020. I don't know if that calculation was right, but I, I guess she didn't want to add to the, uh, um, the ongoing civil war. So um, I agree that it would have been nice for her to have backed Bernie, but um, look, um, she uh, she's not 100% perfect. She is a politician at the end of the day. Um, yeah. She made a calculation. And I think uh, the body of her work um, before and subsequent to that election, I think, will, will puts her in a position where she still emerges as a, as a highly credible spokesman on, on Wall Street financial reform. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think her actions do speak louder than her words. But at the end of the day, she should have just stayed out of it if that was the choice in her calculation. She would have benefited Probably. from not... You know what I mean? Yeah, probably. Anyway. And um, um, look, uh, as, uh, as, as Kirsten Gillibrand has shown, you can you can turn off against the Clintons, even having, having taken their support for many decades, right. and uh, it doesn't <laughs> seem to hurt you. So, but I, you know, I don't I don't think she did it for really nefarious reasons. I think, it, uh, and at the end of the day, um, she 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 did. Uh, maybe she felt that she would have a more effective voice pushing. Um, Mm-hmm. Hillary in the right direction if she took that calculation. Again, hindsight 2020. Okay. Um, I, I agree with you, but you know I'm not going to um, hold that against her. If she wants to run in 2020, for sure she'd be my choice. Indeed. Okay. And then let's talk about Tim Kaine. He was uh, one of the worst examples, in my opinion, of giving cover to Republicans, as is yes. Mark Warner and I think Joe Manchin. I think those three have continually sided with the GOP on these issues. And they all claim, if you ask them about it, they all claim there's no quid pro quo involved and that the campaign donations that they've taken from the banks have no bearing on their decisions. I don't buy it. Yeah. Uh, well, as I said in the article, you know, and, and gambling doesn't take its place at Rick's Cafe either. So, um, the, the, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nonsensical idea. And, um, in fact, there has been excellent work done by Professor Tom Ferguson uh, at the Institute for New Economic Thinking and UMass, who, who pointed mm-hmm. out in his book, uh, I think it's called the uh, the Golden Rule. Um, um, essentially, he he, he tracked, uh, and he's one of the first to do this. Um, he tracked um, campaign donations uh, with with voting right. preferences of, of uh, various um, congressmen and senators, and um, it, it's a, it's an almost 100 percent correlation. So yeah, exactly. um, they're being completely <laughs> disingenuous when they they say that. And it's worth noting that you know uh, Tim Kaine gets a lot of money from Big Law, which is closely affiliated to Wall Street. Warner takes a lot of money from Wall Street, from J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs. Um, Heidi Heitkamp, um, uh, her largest contributor to her 2018 race in North Dakota, comes from Goldman Sachs. So um, you can explain their votes that way. Um, It's certainly not helping them in the polls. Um, They're all behind in the, in the, uh, the current polls. And in they any are. case, I, I don't. I don't have a sense of uh, any populist uprising demanding regulatory relief for banks. Uh, that, that's not one of the big priorities of the electorate right now. No, and you're right. And it's the argument that they're using from running candidates that go further to the left. And it seems to me they're missing the message of the 2016 primary, which was this: whether you were on the right or whether you were on the left, the income inequality in the country is affecting you. And we can all unify against this idea that we have to be subservient to corporations and the bank. So I, I really feel like in these areas, running a more leftist populist candidate who understands those things, all of Bernie Sanders, would make more sense, not less sense. 
Yeah, well, he certainly there, there is an interesting overlap between a lot of his uh, supporters and a lot of them uh, went to uh, to Trump in the uh, election. Uh, you know, it may have been misguided, but you can understand why they, they made that choice. Um, it was a question right. of um, the devil they knew uh, versus the devil that they, they didn't really know 100% well, but maybe he would turn out to be better. So I, I understand. Um, mm-hmm. The point is that, you know, if you, if you go GOP light, a lot of voters are going to say, well, why don't I just vote for the real McCoy? Um, That's um, right, exactly. You know, uh, <laughs> it's, and, and, and I, I think the problem is they, they feel constrained by their donor base, which is why I applaud an increasing number of uh, Democratic senators who are adopting the Bernie Sanders model, which is to swear off corporate donations and, and to raise it uh, on, a, on an individual basis. It's more taxing and time-consuming, but it, it leaves you less vulnerable to being bought and paid for. Exactly. So, you know, in my opinion, Trump being elected, I think you're, I think you're correct. I think that's why there was some crossover. I don't think people really realized how, how bad he would be, and they had hope that maybe he was going to solve some of the income inequality, because he did make campaign promises of correcting the system, of sure. not he, he, he did a classic bait and switch. I mean, uh, look, I, I think a lot of the people that voted for him, you know, they, they're, they're – I, I've written an article on Trump, and it, they, they are the losers of globalization. They're promised yeah. uh, help every four years. Nothing ever happened for them. So they're already in a pretty rotten position. And I guess they take the view, you know, the, the journalist Chris Arnati calls them volatility voters. And what, what he means is that, um, you know, that they have no upside in the current system. So they, they figure that it, it, there's a possibility that this guy is, is, is volatile. He'll shake the whole system up. Maybe he'll even destroy it. But that doesn't make them any worse off in their in their minds. Um, whereas um, uh, they know that uh, with a, a, a classic neoliberal type of candidate, things aren't really going to change for them. So, uh, that, so it's partly well, he may be a complete phony, but I don't know that for a fact. Um, um, and and um, there's there is a small possibility that he he does change. And if not, in any case, the, the system will get wrecked sooner, and we could have something that works better for me. So it, it it's a it, it's. You either you had a disenfranchised voters that either voted for uh, or disenchanted voters that either voted for Trump or they just opted out completely. I mean, I think we had 57 percent, 58 percent turnout in this last election, and a lot of Obama's uh, voters stayed right. home because they just um, didn't right. believe that anybody was going to change anything for them. That's right. Um, so, in yeah, for that reason, I would say that Trump and Brexit, I think, are they're both symptoms of the same disease, and we're not yes. doing anything about. The, the disease itself, which is the failed neoliberal policy. Yes, that's so right, and that's the, that's the problem in Europe as well. You're you're absolutely right, and the, and you're seeing a yeah. wave of populist uh, uprisings most recently in the Italian right. election, for example, for the same reason. You know, people don't think that the status quo is working for them. Right. So let's um, let's talk a little bit about uh, monetary policy because I think these mm-hmm. are the things that we need to get at if we want to change. Um, this wave of, of neo-nationalism that's sweeping the globe, but it does have a dangerous aspect to it because when folks are told to blame the brown or black guy, they do. And I think it's uh, deeply uh, connected in the way that Hitler was. It's deeply connected to um, income inequality and problems within uh, the society. So a little bit about negative interest rates. Um, are they bad? Does it encourage more lending as, as conventional wisdom would believe? What is your opinion on that? It's, it's a very bad idea. It, it, first of all, we're talking about uh, negative interest rates on bank reserves. And, you know, uh, as the yes, BIS correct, and the correct. IMF point out, uh, 
you don't lend out reserves. Reserves are only used for settlement purposes with the central bank or for interbank lending. So it's not actually, they're not actually there for, to, for real reserves. And, and the other point is this, um, lending is a, is a two-way contract. It's between a borrower and a lender. That sounds pretty obvious, but you know, the, the lender wants to have a viable borrower on the other side, and the borrower has to be a creditworthy customer. And to be a creditworthy customer, you've got to have rising income. You don't want to be massively in debt, potting on yet more debt. So it doesn't make sense when people are still suffering from stagnant wages um, and stagnant income um, to encourage a credit-based economy. You want to encourage more, uh, you know, policies that encourage job growth, full employment. And by the way, I don't think we have anything close to full employment now, despite what the um, the recent report I, indicated. I agree. Uh, um, and and so um, and, and once you have that, you you can have a you can have a, um, you can have a viable. Um, uh, bank credits, you, you can take on credit in, in a much more um, a sustainable way. In fact, I would say that full employment is the best way to guarantee a financially viable uh, and sustainable uh, banking system because um, fully employed people are able to um, sustain their debt service and, and pay back their right. debt. Um, and um, it means that the banks have less write-offs and charge-offs. So you know, everyone works out, but of course the banks don't like it as much, uh, at least the investment banks, because you know, many of these destructive um, derivatives products that they now truck in, um, which are essentially um, you know, a modern-day form of loan sharking, um, they add a huge amount to their bottom line, but they're very systemically dangerous for the economy as a whole. Yeah, they are systemically dangerous. And in fact, let's talk about that for one second. I think a lot of Americans don't realize that Bill Clinton was responsible for making a very large change in, in yeah. the way banks are structured. We used to have a system that separated commercial banks from investment banks, which I yeah. thought was, it was an important part of keeping the system whole and safe. And he removed that wall. Um, and, you know, flash forward, we've seen a lot of the devastation that that has wrought, meaning that the commercial banks now behave like investment banks. And it's, it's um, again, we get back to the idea of moral hazards. Is there a way to bring back, do you think, in, in the political current environment, is there a way to bring back that those rules? Or is that just, has that horse left the barn? Well, it, it's, it's a combination of um, Bill Clinton and also um, uh, the Greenspan said, because actually... Right, Even before right. um, Glass-Steagall was formally um, revoked, um, many there was a lot of exemptions that were, you know, carved out unilaterally by the Federal Reserve. It was, you know, he he approved, for example, the uh, a number of Sandy Wiles acquisitions of Travelers and City, for example. That was against the law, That's right. but they provided a waiver. So, and <clears throat> Clinton, I suppose, could have actually uh, gone against that, but of course, he had one of the most pro-Wall Street Treasury secretaries in history, Bob Rubin. Yeah. So he, yeah. Uh, so yeah, he said the stage. Look, I, I think that the uh, mess we're in is has bipartisan ownership. There's no question about it. Um, and you ask the question, can we change it now? And I would say, in the current environment uh, which exists today, I would say no. Um, the the banks uh, are still far too powerful. The system of uh, campaign finance uh, is. Um, has been fully legitimized. Um, it's been made even worse by the Supreme Court decisions on, say, Citizens United. So yeah. what I think has got to happen, is, as unpleasant as it, um, as it sounds, is I think you, you've got to wait for another um, financial crash before we actually fix it. And um, mm. maybe you need something. I don't think it ha Hopefully it doesn't have to get as bad as the Great Depression, but you need something that really is going to put these guys on the back foot again. And then you need a, a political leader 
who has the guts um, to take these guys right. on once and for all, downsize and break up uh, the banks um, and make finance a much smaller proportion of uh, GDP. You know, just to give you a way, uh, by way of comparison, in 1960s, around the early 60s, financial profits of the um, fi finance, insurance, and real estate industry was, I think, about 2% of GDP. And before the right. crisis, it was almost 50%. So um, that gives you an indication of how the structure of our economy has changed radically in the last 50 years or so. What is your opinion on states creating state banks all of North Dakota? They have a state bank there. They're the only state that has it, but I know there's been some discussion amongst uh, people in California, people in Hawaii, about creating a state bank. Uh, what do you think of that as far as a solution for at least creating the ability to publicly fund bonds and things? Without sure, I agree. Uh, it's, it's not a bad idea. Um, it can provide a model. I mean, uh, ideally what I'd like to see ultimately is a banking system. I'd like to see banking being made as boring as a utility again. I'd like to go back right. to a narrow banking system. <laughs> Um, you know, everyone talks about the complexity of um, financial regulation today, and 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 um, and I would say that's an outgrowth of the complexity of banking and finance um, right. itself. So that um, the way you simplify regulation and 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 uh, mitigate this um, regulatory overkill that people like Tester or Mansion uh, or the other defenders of this crapo bill are, are are talking about is to simplify <laughs> the banking functions themselves which makes them much easier to regulate. And, and um, that would also be more effective. I have a friend, uh, a fellow uh, economist, Warren Mosler, who, who talks about um, you know, the, the, the best way to regulate is to regulate the liabilities, uh, the, the asset side of the bank's balance sheet, not the liability side. And what he means by ah, that is okay. restrict the range of activities that they are involved with um, rather than deal with the um, regulating so that they're, they're coping with the aftermath of those very activities. So you can, I mean, increasing capital ratios so they can absorb more write-offs is, is a good idea, but why not get rid mm -hmm. of the um, activities which create the, uh, the, the need right. for the write-offs in the first place? That's the way I would go. No, I think that makes sense to me. Um, let's discuss quantitative easing, easing a little bit. Ultimately, what it was there for was uh, it was designed to help incite um, risk appetite again. And right. in that success, uh, it was very successful because it got, um, it revived animal spirits. Um, but effectively all it did was um, create, recreate the status quo ante. And I think um, we want mm -hmm. to get rid of that. Um, the, what I, I really think um, is that you, 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 monetary policy as a way, means of um, uh, affecting changes is, is, is not a good way to go. What you want to do is, is face, focus attention on real spending in the, in, on, on, on Main Street, and that's done through, um, through fiscal policy. And I think the central banks uh, took on too much when they took on quantitative easing, but in, in, in defense of, the, of the, say, the Federal Reserve and other banks, there was a political vacuum where fiscal policy had become totally dysfunctional, and I think they felt yeah. they needed to do something to help uh, mitigate the problem. Um, I don't think quantitative easing was the way to go, and I also think that um, the Bernanke Fed was way too accommodating to um, to, to Wall Street, um, mm -hmm. and I don't actually think that it, 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 it helped to revive credit growth. As I say, the best way to have done that would have been to um, you know have got um, people back working again. I also think that there should have been a massive restructuring of, of, of the private debt that was out there, um, which yeah. would have forced creditors to take a hit. None of, none of that would have done, but that would have been far more effective in my view than um, um, quantitative easing. 
I don't disagree. And in fact, you brought up, I think, a very salient point, uh, the difference between public debt and private debt. And it yes. seems to me that our system is constantly trying to deal with the former and doing nothing about the latter. The private debt yeah. in the country is astronomically high. Uh, for example, student loans. Yeah. I don't see how, you know, we're encouraging folks not to save. We're encouraging folks not to get an education. We're doing all of these things that have a very bad effect on the overall broader society. And there seems to be there's no will to, to deal with the private debt. And I think one of the biggest reasons is because the bank would be on the losing side of, of any sort of reform we did in that area. It, would you agree? Yeah, uh, I think this is one of the big um, problems we have when we discuss, um, you know, the, 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 you know, you have the Peterson Institute saying, oh, we've got this massive quantity of debt. Um, right. First of all, um, it's not public debt that's created the largest financial crises that we had either the, the Great Depression or 2008. It was private debt. And the that's build-up right. of private debt comes when you constrain um, uh, government spending fiscal policy too much. You, you suck income out of the economy that way. And um, mm -hmm. you, you therefore um, force people to rely more on, on, on debt. And also, you, 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 when you run surpluses, as, as, as Clinton did in the late 1990s, you also um, remove the supply of a very stable form of savings for most American people. So that, that, uh, mm -hmm. And then to replace that, you have Wall Street to create all these wonderfully convoluted um, instruments which um, were bought by pension funds and the like and actually worthless. So um, um, it, I, I think... People have got to understand. You know, if you let me take a step back, um, I, I don't want okay. to get into a boring accounting 101 lecture. But no, no, no. Look, Actually, it's a good thing. We want to educate. Okay, well, okay, well <laughs> the, the, the the point is this: um, if you take a very simplified view of the global of the of a national economy, you've got three sectors. You've got um, um, the private household and corporate sector. Um, you've got the trade sector, which is imports and exports, and you've got um, uh, the government sector. So. Uh, that's one big pie, and on balance, that pie has to balance. So in, a, in other words, it, it, it all nets out to zero at the, at the end of the day. But at any given time, any one of those sectors can run a deficit uh, or a surplus, providing the, oh, the, the other, uh, there's another side willing to accommodate the other side of that uh, transaction. So in other words, um, you know, you can have uh, uh, governments um, uh, running large deficits uh, provided that there is a, uh, a, a, and there's a corresponding surplus on the other side. The, 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 the fact of the matter is that when you are asking governments to run uh, perpetual surpluses, um, then effectively you are putting much more stress on the private sector because you're, you're effectively, you are putting, creating a net dis-savings position for the private sector unless you've got a large trade surplus, which we haven't had in this country for a long time. So you've got to, so, so in fact, those of us in the school of thought would suggest that, in fact, um, contrary to the prevailing mythology, um, government deficits can actually be a good thing because they actually help to accommodate uh, private sector savings. And that's Accounting 101. Uh, of course, right. this is what you'll hear by most people. The Peterson yeah. Institute will tell you the opposite. But actually, um, as I like to point out, uh, in, 18, in the 1830s, uh, Levi Woodbury, who was in the treasurer under uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, eliminated the national debt and, and ran um, persistent um, uh, sur budget surpluses. And by 1837, he created the conditions for a terrible depression and um, um, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the last for the next uh, seven years. So um, the, it, it's never a good idea to run uh, budget surpluses for a long time. Um, and uh, in fact, we ran very, very large budget deficits during the, the Second World War. 
um, and if deficits are so ruinous to our national health or our national security, then why would we run them during wartime when presumably you, you, you want to have your economy op- operating at, 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 in an optimal way? Right. Right. No, and I think that's exactly right. Um, so on that note, do you think that actual free markets exist? And I think um, from a philosophical point of view, what other types of economies are choice economies that aren't capitalist? Uh, well, look, I, I mean, the, no economy in the world is, is actually a, a, a pure free market capitalist country, even in the United States. Um, you know, you've got right. Jamie Galbraith wrote a very good book a few years ago, The Predator State, where he points out that, you know, if you include the military, uh, Social Security, Medicaid, uh, Medicare, um, there's a huge component of the U.S. economy, which is which is uh, a public sector and likewise in, 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 in Europe. Um, so this idea that we've got this mythologized free market is, 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 is false. So it really just comes mm-hmm. down to the, the choices, you know, what one wants to um, uh, make, uh, that voters want to make. Uh, you know, there, I, I agree that there's some things that the private sector do much better than the public sector. Um, and there right. are some things that I think the, uh, the public sector can do better. So, for example, in, in the healthcare debate, um, Medicare actually operates far more efficiently than a private health insurance yes, it does. Uh, company does Absolutely. because it doesn't have to spend all this money on, on pre-screening and because it can use its um, capacity as a large-scale buyer, what we call single-payer, to actually help um, reduce the cost of services and drugs, etc., yep. if they choose to, which is why uh, the insurance and um, uh, pharmaceutical companies hate their guts. But um, that's how, um, uh, for example single payer works in Canada where I'm from. Um, you know, it's not that yeah. it's all, it's not as, uh, as uh, Senator Feinstein right, recently said, a, a government takeover of the healthcare yeah, system. It, it's, uh, it's publicly so funded, but everything is privately administered. So, um, but, but again, um, people don't, aren't given that choice in this country. Um, I like mm-hmm. to put it another way, um, we're veering off topic a bit, but I'll just say that, you know, why, why should healthcare be a marginal cost of, of, of doing business here in the United States? It isn't anywhere else in the world. <laughs> You know, why, why do we put our businesses at such an unfair uh, competitive disadvantage by making them pay the, the, yeah. the cost for our health care? No, and you're right. Uh, you know, Medicare operates at 2%, whereas private health insurance is like 30%. Medicare is way more economically efficient. We pay yeah. in this country two to four times more per patient for lesser care because you're more yeah, likely to right. have your claim denied by private insurer on top of it if they don't find it to be equitable, they're going to deny your claim. It happens on the daily. So it, what we're doing with our health care makes absolutely no sense to me. And indeed, I would go so far to say that there aren't any, <clears throat> my family's from Sweden, there aren't any conservatives in Sweden that would agree with this system. It makes no sense. Yet, here we are, yeah. um, trying to get Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it, the, I, I, some, of the, the more, some of the more conservative uh, people have said, you know what you can do is um, um, offer uh, introduce antitrust into the uh, the health insurance business to produce, introduce some real uh, competitive pressures. But you know uh, even Paul Krugman has said that it's it's um, it doesn't um, the the health once health it, it doesn't really work uh, it, it, the way a lot of you know, the, the private market does. I mean you have a relationship with your doctor, you feel comfortable with your doctor. You don't make uh, um, um, healthcare decisions purely based on on rational self-maximizing utility considerations. And That's so, correct, think, yes. Um, and so I think you have, and this, so this is why I think this is an area where it should be, you know, it should be thought of as a public good. Um, um, 
Look, as I say, I come from Canada. We have a, a, a viable uh, healthcare system up there, which is single payer. You have a viable insurance uh, industry as well. Now, it's not without mm-hmm. its problems. I'd be the first to admit that. Um, you do have waiting times for certain kinds of treatment. Um, uh, the, the difference is in the U.S. that um, you know, the, the waiting times aren't there because the, if the insurance companies deny you the coverage, you can't. Um, um, it, it, it effectively amounts to the same thing. Um, it's denial of access. So it just happens through. The rationalization takes a different form. The, the, to use Sarah right. Palin's memorable term, death panels are not government-run. They're private health insurance companies. That's right. That's right. Actuaries that model yeah. whether or not the service is, is a beneficial for the insurance company. You're correct. And I bring yeah. that up to conservatives quite a bit, and they don't even know that these folks exist. And I was like, no, no, actuaries are actual death panelists, in my opinion. Yeah, they that's they right. make decisions solely based on profit. And it's really an immoral function that we are handing over health care of our population to whether it's uh, profitable for an industry. This, to me, is absolutely crazy, but it's what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan of Adam Smith, and I feel like he is one of the most bastardized philosophers around. I don't understand why libertarians embrace him whole, wholeheartedly. I think they've never read past the first two chapters of Wealth of Nations. I'm convinced. Well, they, they, they've never read past the chapters of uh, those first two chapters of Wealth of Nations, and they haven't read his book on uh, moral sentiments, uh, which is a very, oh, which also moral. gives it. Uh, and that, right. that gives a very, very different um, sort of presentation. I mean, he, he was not a, a market fundamentalist by any stretch. No, um, not at anyone all. that's read him would know that. So, um, exactly. But again, as you say, uh, that's, that's not the common mythology. It is not the common mythology. And it really bothers me when folks refer to him as the father of capitalism. No, he was not the father of capitalism. Adam Smith was an Enlightenment period writer. Capitalism is an 18th century concept. So capitalism did not exist when Adam Smith was around. And I think the bigger takeaway is, although, you know, he talks about division of labor and all these things, that's definitely a a main theme in the book. He he thinks that labor should participate in the fruits of production. He makes really strong cases for guilds and unions and for labor getting their fair share. And if they don't get their fair share, the things that, uh, things bad, bad things that happen to the economy. And he also wrote a devastating criticism of what was going on in India, which I'm going to compare to currently the global south, about, you know, about Britain coming in and stealing the resources and leaving them without uh, anything. And anyway, so Adam Smith, I would say, is much more socialist than he is libertarian, although I think Chomsky refers to him as a libertarian socialist. But I feel like he writes about ways of forming economic structures that are that are free markets, because free markets are good. I think command economies are bad, but he talks about ways of doing it which aren't entirely capitalist. In the United States, I feel we have a, uh, a superseding idea that our government system has to be the same as our economy, and I think that's wrong. I think we, have a, mm-hmm. we should have a free market system, and we should have a social democracy that, democracy that picks up all of the bad parts of the raw capitalism. Is that, yeah. in your opinion, the best way to go about having a, a stable society, or no? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that, uh, look, my own personal preference is for something close to the, the Nordic model. Um, that mm-hmm. might not be the preference of the vast majority of Americans, but the point is that that, that option's not really out there right now. Uh, I, think, I think Bernie Sanders came close to offering it, but that option is so foreclosed uh, in the electoral process right. that, you know, you get, and, and um, what's happened is that um, um, 
as the neoliberal paradigm has become paramount over the last 30, 35 years, the political center of gravity has moved further and further to the right. So um, what right. many Democrats espouse today are what um, liberal Republicans such as Rockefeller or even Nixon on domestic policy would have espoused um, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Um, and I think, um, you know, that, that we're, we're, look, the, the British Tories are, are, are probably more um, um, radical on things like health care uh, than the American Democrats are. Uh, the NHS, the National Health Service in Britain has problems, but you would be political suicide for any uh, par- party member of the Tories or for any politician in Britain to advocate moving to an American-style um, model right. of private health insurance. I mean, it would just, it would just be death, death to you. you there's, there's way too much of a national consensus in favor of uh, what we disparagingly call here socialized medicine. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're right. I, I, and I think the reason Americans don't full-heartedly embrace it is because they don't understand what they're missing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I that's they, right. That's right. You know what I'm saying? If they had it, they would realize how much better it is, and they would be fighting for it. But they've been brainwashed into believing, as you just said, socialized, you know, using my scare quotes, anything social is a bad idea. I mean, the health insurance yeah, lobbyists right. have been very effective at pushing this sort of messaging, and it's been successful. But I think I do think that, that there is a tide change, and uh, folks are coming around to the idea that maybe what we're doing isn't entirely right. I, you know, health care debt is the biggest cause of bankruptcy in the United States. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's right. And that's been one of the, the single greatest causes of, of, of um, declining living standards, so that you had stagnating wages, and yet the cost of, of health care and health insurance has been right. growing exponentially. And, and that hasn't really, that's even, even before the latest um, changes introduced by Trump, that, that didn't really change under the, uh, the ACA, uh, Obamacare. So, um, no, it a, did not. A, a real problem, and um, yeah, Randy Ray and I uh, wrote a piece about that, um, uh, pointing out that this would happen. Um, we got we got a lot of criticism from um, some of our fellow economists on the left um, when we wrote yeah. this piece, uh, but um, it's turned out to be the case because you know essentially mm-hmm. he did to healthcare what he's done in the banking system. You preserve a, a, a private health insurance oligopoly and entrench it right. through this new legislation. As you entrench a, a private banking oligopoly, then you know all sorts of mischief follows from that. No, and I think you were right. I think criticizing the ACA at that time was the right thing to do, especially when Obama backed away from the public option. And he yeah. had, at that particular junction, he had the the wind at his sails. He had control of of the Congress. That's so, right. He and and that that's a that's a classic illustration of how uh, the 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 we inexorably move right uh, through our our political process because. First of all, you take the single payer option off the table right away, but it's it's discounted because there's no way that can happen. Okay, well, if you don't talk about it, um, it, it's never going to happen anyway. I mean, one of one of the great strengths of the Republicans, especially under you know Bush and Cheney, was you know you keep talking about crazy ideas. People say you can't do that; that's absolutely impossible. But they keep talking about it, and 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 they and they've gradually moved the political needle in 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 that direction. Mm -hmm. So you take off. um, uh, single payer, you say there's no way we can do that, and then the the compromise becomes the so-called public option, and then of course right. um, that gets negotiated out of conference in the final final deal, and then um, uh, you have Obama's uh, press spokesman at the time, Robert Gibbs, railing about the professional left, and Obama says, you know, we got 95 percent 
of what we wanted in, in that healthcare legislation. But the 5%, why, why were the insurance uh, and, and pharmaceutical companies fighting so aggressively against that 5%? Because they knew that would introduce a real cost containment uh, as far as healthcare costs go, and they were, they were determined to resist that at, at, at all costs. So again, it, it's just a classic illustration of, of how the, the discourse moves to the right and then it's mis misrepresented as uh, uh, something that's um, uh, some form of left-wing fanaticism or absolutism when it's right. not that at all. No, right. That's exactly right. Um, it's all about sometimes just controlling the conversation and the optics. Um, right. I wanna, exactly. I wanna, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the idea of ethics and positive economics, meaning that we've sort of come to a place in the last century where there's a disconnect between moral obligations and what economics is, that they're not related and they shouldn't be discussed within the same realm. But at the same time, I feel very strongly that there are suppressed premises in every decision that's made that do have very, very real moral implications in the real world, of course, so to speak. Of course. So and and, and economists know. like to dress that up as, as you know, they, they like to say it's a neutral social science. It's, you know, they, they use these fancy mathematical models, which in, in, incidentally are very um, um, substandard mathematics. If you talk to any mathematician, they'll say that it's very really <laughs> simplified versions of math that they use. But the point is, but the math those models to work. <laughs> And the math has to work. That's right. You know, don't, don't, don't um, I, I'm going to, my model is perfect. Please don't confuse me with that by introducing some new facts. And so, um, and, and, and they, they, they do that in part there to mask their political biases. So, um, yeah, what, there are certain implied preferences in every uh, economic uh, decision. And, um, you know, they, the, uh, someone like Greg Mankiw has a very, very different uh, set of um, preferences than, um, uh, say uh, someone like uh, um, um, uh, 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 Stephanie Kelton, who was Bernie Sanders' uh, chief economic mm -hmm. advisor in the last election. So, but and 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 one of the jobs I think we have is to tease those out to show that look, um, you are making these arguments, but ultimately um, you're you're uh, indicating a, a political preference for something. It's a moral preference for something. So, for example. Um, there is a, do you want, like on the question about employment, one of the dirty little secrets is that, you know, if you keep a, um, uh, the economy at a higher level on employment, you help to moderate wage pressures because you're constantly right. um, leaving people, uh, leaving a, a huge reservoir of, of unemployed people. Um, and, and there's a, an implied threat that if you don't, um, you know, fall in line with this, that, you know, we'll go to hire someone else at, um, uh, um, will choose your, um, um, will we'll take your job. And, and it's the same with the attacks on unions, for example. So, so those are all political preferences. You know, they're, they're masked as, uh, as um, you know, somehow uh, minor supply side uh, technical issues, which are uh, there to help the economy operate in a more efficient way. But it, it, it's nothing of the kind. And, um, and there's also language as well, which is used. I mean, George Lakoff, um, is very good on this point as well. He, he notes how the right appropriates um, certain kinds of uh, languages, uh, uh, a certain kind of language, which of course tilts the conversation in a particular way. So for example, um, we call things like Social Security and Medicare 
uh, entitlements. Right. You know, um, you know, we don't we don't call them enablements. You know, or we talk about mm-hmm. government bailouts. You know, or, or we talk about the free market because, of course, the free market is wonderful, which means that you know that it casts right. the argument as a meddling government that actually is is, is preventing the uh, the kids from playing in the playground and enjoying themselves. You know, that that mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing that we do. And and, and so um, he says that you have you have to be very very careful about the language you use uh, um, because that is another factor which um, will shape the debate in, in, in significant ways. No, and you're right. I think one of the worst examples of this was the uh, uh, Lawrence Summers memo that he sent out in uh, 1991 that basically was him encouraging the World Bank to migrate dirty industries to less developed countries for the yeah, for the main the reason only an economist could love. Yeah, yes, that's right. Um, you know, they had a they had a deficit in pollution so that you could um, move right. it out there and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's no, all sorts of uh, things like that. Um, and look, uh, the, 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 these guys also were the ones that championed all the financial deregulation, um, uh, even though um, you can easily make the case that um, um, uh, if you look empirically, virtually every major financial economic crisis has come uh, following a major spell of, of uh, financial deregulation. And, um, and my view is that, you know, the paradox of a, of, a, of a proper functioning free market economy is that you need a tightly regulated financial sector for the real market to operate efficiently. Because if you don't, you know, ultimately they will create their own kinds of distortions and ruin the operations of the market. And that's exactly what we've had over the last um, 30, 40 years. I mean, we had a very good functioning system of capitalism in the post-World War II period, the, what Hyman Minsky called the golden age of capitalism, um, where you had a full employment economy, uh, banks uh, basically were there to uh, provide loans, not to create toxic derivatives, and um, all that began to change in the late 1970s when there was this push to deregulate because um, it was said that this is, um, you know, inefficient and um, fundamentally antithetical to the operations of the market. Well, you know, we saw how that turned out. Right. Yeah. No. You know, raw capitalism will eat itself. The regulations yes. are necessary if you want to keep it stable, and I think that's what we have gotten away from. Yeah. So speaking, yeah, right. of, speaking of moral arguments in regards to these sorts of things, I want to talk about George Soros for a second. Uh, he argues that markets are amoral, meaning that they are neither moral or immoral. They're just um, a function that allows people to make decisions based in their best self-interest, so to speak. I don't know that that's exactly how I see it. I do have some strong opinions on Soros. Many of them are not positive, just full disclosure mm-hmm. right there. But yeah. I know that you worked for the Institute for New Economic Thinking, which is an organization that he funds. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you about a specific argument that he's made in his book on globalization. And he talks right. about using SDRs as special drawing rights. And these were things that were created in 1969. They're basically um, international reserve assets. So he's yeah, suggesting held by the IMF. That he, correct. So he's suggesting that we use these. Uh, as a solution. Again, this is an entirely market-based solution for something that maybe isn't going to be well served by a market-based solution. But, you know, he's a, neo- he's a neoliberal. He's a neoist. He thinks that the market is amoral and it serves as the arbiter of, of just about anything. And, and what do you think of that? Well, uh, I, I think the, the market, you, you, could, you should shape the incentives so that the market uh, uh, operated in a manner which is consistent with broader public purpose. I think the market itself, yeah, it's a, it's a blank canvas. It, it, there, are, there are certain aspects of capitalism which are 
very brutal, um, and that's why we introduced a welfare state, for example, um, much to the chagrin of some people, I guess. Um, the, the reason I don't like the idea of using SDRs or um, the IMF is, uh, well, there's a number of them. Um, the, the, the IMF has been um, basically a, 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 an arbiter and in many respects a bagman for Washington in the last over several financial crises. Um, they yeah, have perpetuated the, the very philosophy which you know you've, you which uh, you decry. Um, you look at their actions in the late 1990s, for example, in Asia, forcing on yeah. austerity, um, an austerity package on on um, countries that were suffering from intense depressions and needed exactly the opposite uh, yeah. solution. And and in fact, reverse when they reversed themselves, they began to recover. Now, in fairness, um, they claim to have learned a bit since that time, and there, there are people like the former chief economist, Olivier Bonchard, who have, um, uh, have argued much more in favor of aggressive of, um, fiscal stimulus. Um, but for the most part, you know, leopards don't change their spots. The other problem, of course, is that special drawing rights, um, uh, if, if you want to increase them and use them in the manner in which um, uh, Soros proposed, and he proposed this back in 2002, I think, so things have, have got worse since then. But... You, you need to get um, sign-off from the national governments because the, the, the drawing rights are drawn from the central banks of the major central banks, so that be the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, Bank of China, etc. Um, and ultimately, you would need um, Congress to sign off on an increase for the IMF. And um, you know, it's hard to believe that this Congress, led by Mitch McConnell or, or Paul Ryan, and with a president who you know, absolutely despises the UN and probably has no time at all for the IMF, would actually um, go along with anything remotely connected towards them, um, funding more money to a globalist organization since they all hate it. So to me, it, it, that's in the realm of, of fantasy utopia. It, it, it's just not workable. Right. I agree. Um, and I, I, you know, my bigger concern at this point is that there have been a lot of um, bad things that have come from globalization that the left doesn't seem to want to discuss. I, you know, I, I, I think the horse has left the barn. I don't think you're returning to the time where you're isolationist. That's not going to happen. But at the same time, we need to have the conversation about what exactly our goals are when it comes to globalization, because I don't think free trade is necessarily beneficial. I think we need to look at things like fair trade, meaning that yeah. the environmental factions are taken into play, that we discuss how it affects labor in both countries. These are the things that are left in the dust, and it's had a very bad influence on a big portion of the society for this reason. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and um, you know, I think we're starting to have that discussion now, and, um, and also um, in Europe with the, the growth of the, um, the EU bureaucracy um, the, the, and the ongoing subversion of national parliaments. That's, that's part of the, re the reaction that Brexit was all about. So there are people that are beginning to reconsider this. Um, mm -hmm. uh, as you say, um, it's fine to um, sprout about the benefits of, of free trade, but um, you've got to at least have programs in place uh, for people that lose their jobs through this, uh, right. this, 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 this global liberalization. And the other point I would make is that if you look at the so-called free trade agreements that have been negotiated recently, um, such as the TPP or the, um, or the transatlantic uh, partnerships, they don't um, actually deal that much with traded goods. Now they're, de they're moving into services. And in many cases, right. they entrench uh, certain oligopolistic um, privileges that are yeah. um, held by you know, big pharma or the banks. Um, so they're not actually yep. um, 
genuinely serving free trade. The, the free trade, Dean Baker is very good on this as well. Um, you know, it doesn't generally tend to um, uh, refer to liberalization of services like medical services or um, uh, insurance services, financial services. Um, they, they, they are, so it's, it's a bit of a misnomer to call what we, we describe now as free trade. I mean, I think yeah. it's great when you have um, goods that are uh, going across the world in a, in a rather frictionless way. But you know you've got to do something for those people in Youngstown, Ohio, for example, that have, have uh, lived in an economic wasteland and have been devastated by free trade. Just to simply say that they're a quote unquote negative external externality. That um, uh, but the overall benefits on, on a macro basis is great for this society. I mean that's not good enough, and that's part of the reason why. Again, you have um, the, the phenomenon of Donald Trump, who I always call a consequence mm -hmm. rather than a cause. No, and I 100% agree. He. Um he is, he is the disease, or the symptom, not the disease, I agree. Yes, yes, yeah, that's right. He's probably both now. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right, he is both now. But, but I think the, the reason he came into power was because of all of these things. People are hurting. Yeah. Um, let's talk about a, what I think is a lesser known scandal to most Americans, but was probably well understood in Europe, and that's the LIBOR scandal. You brought it up earlier, um, mm -hmm. but we didn't really get into the nuts and bolts of that. So LIBOR is basically uh, it's the London Interbank uh, rate. So this is the rates that the Interbank trading uh, uses, and the banks were intentionally manipulating these rates starting, I think, back yeah. in 2005, but I think the scandal broke in 2008 or somewhere around there. But ultimately, I think how it affects most Americans is they should understand that it connects to your home mortgage rate, for example. So um, how did this scandal come to be, and how did it poorly affect or adversely affect uh, the public, and what can we do to, to prevent something like this happening again? Well, um, it, it basically, uh, this was a, an uncontrolled uh, um, cartel of a few private banks that Cartel, um, yeah. arbitrarily uh, set rates at whatever level they wanted. And they were able to manipulate it because there was no real regulation. I think it was eight or nine banks. And why it's important is that, you know, this is the um, uh, rate. It's like the global interest rate of which all loans and um, um, uh, mortgages, uh, it, 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 it basically sets the, the baseline for every single assessment on, on, on interest rates. So, you know, it, it right. means that you could be paying um, literally millions of dollars more just on the basis of these guys arbitrarily setting a spread, and, um, and they made massive profits from it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that, and, and um, uh, they, it, it wasn't exposed for years. Um, as I said, they operated it for decades. Um, right. And... Um, and in the meantime, the, the, the traders who were involved in this uh, got paid, um, you know, millions and millions of dollars in bonuses. And um, yeah. finally, uh, it, it all started to come out to light. And, um, um, yeah, they're now talking about uh, abolishing LIBOR or, or, or establishing some sort of control over it. But nothing's really been done. I mean, you, you've had a few people go uh, arrested. But, again, you know, these are the fall guys. I mean, you, 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 have, some tr you have some show trials. Um, where a few traders are punished um, right. or uh, threatened with punishment. Uh, sometimes they don't even get that much punishment. But the executives no, uh, that sanction these policies, uh, you know, they go off scot-free. They get off scot-free, which is crazy to yeah. me because, again, we're getting back to that idea of a moral hazard that's been created. And we saw a similar situation with Enron when they were manipulating the markets in California. 
you know, the state ended yeah. up paying how much more because of some traders on the floor thinking this was a big joke and they were making millions of dollars. So Yeah, but you, you have these recordings, you know, and people just yucking it up, you know, saying, oh, yeah, I owe you a beer. Thanks a lot for, for doing this all, yeah. you, know, you, they, they, you know. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, um, but, you know, in the meantime, people's uh, lives are, are being affected. It's like, it's like uh, you know, there's... Um, it's like that scene in Charlie Wilson's War, where you have the the, the, the Soviet pilots, you know, they're they're yucking out between themselves, even as they're dropping bombs on these Afghan uh, refugees. So um, it's yeah. the same kind of mentality. It indeed is. Um, speaking of, let's let's talk about Russia fever for a second. It seems to be all the rage currently, and uh, it's kind of stunning to see folks that identify as leftists engaging in full-blown neo-McCarthyism, but. It's yeah. definitely something that's going on. I know that you've been a guest on many of the Russia Today or RT shows. And yeah. you know, they re- recently they were forced to register under FARA, which is crazy to me. So under under that rule, shouldn't the BBC also be forced to register under FARA? I mean, I don't understand the mentality of how this is not an infringement of First Amendment rights. Uh, yeah, here uh, we are. yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, look... Uh, uh, my own experience uh, with with, um, with Russia TV, I was I was mostly on a show called uh, Boom Bust, but I was on a few other shows as well. And I can tell you that there was never any um, uh, Russian interference or uh, uh, pressure to to um, push a particular um, uh, Russian government yeah. line. Um, but and, and there was a lots of um, Pretty respectable names that were on these shows. Um, Absolutely. Uh, but, but, I mean, Larry King uh, yeah, now Russian agent. I mean, yeah. It, well, the, the crazy thing about it is that you know you have these um, you know you have the Democrats um, now turning into born again cold warriors, and yeah, look, there's there's many unsavory aspects of uh, of, of Russian leadership, but uh, oh, this is, is a guy. This is a country that has a the second the world's second largest stockpile of nuclear weapons, and right. um, you know to just think that you can keep poking it, poking it, poking it, and not expect a, a sharp response. And again, it, it's cause and effect. I mean, you know, um, the, the Soviet Union collapses, and uh, we move um, um, uh, the NATO right up on along their borders. Um, right. Um, and, uh, and then we start interfering in, in a country like Ukraine, which where the U.S. has no um, strategic interest at all. And, uh, exactly. and then, then we get surprised when the Russians react to that. Well, you know what? We had this thing called the Cuban Missile Crisis in the U.S. in the early okay. 1960s when the Russians tried to put missiles on, on Cuban soil. And I don't think we took too kindly to that. So, so you can understand a little bit why uh, Mr. Putin has taken has, has, has become as hostile to the West as he has. And the point is, uh, I mean, again, the idea that somehow these um, Russian bots on Facebook um, – yeah shape the election. the election. I, I mean, there, there, really there's been an excellent uh, study uh, on funding from the, uh, uh, on, on, on the U.S. election in 2016. You know, that you had literally billions of, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, over a billion dollars of, of dark money from domestic sources, people like um, um, the Mercer family, um, right. um, the Koch, Koch brothers, brothers, that played a much bigger impact on shaping the, 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 the outcome than uh, these Russians did. But it's a, it's a much more convenient narrative um, um, to, to blame it on, on external sources rather than um, see our domestic oligarchs as being a, a major factor responsible for this. That's right. I mean, even David Brock and Correct the Record spent more money. So the idea that $250,000 or $50,000 in Facebook ads through the election is absolutely absurd. Yet yeah, and, are, and, the, and the other thing uh, I always say is, look, you know, even if it, it was made a difference of a few of, a few of 100,000 votes or so, 
this is Donald Trump for crying out loud. I mean, you know, this is the guy that you wanted to run against. And, you, and, and there was supposed to be no way possible that the Democrats could lose that election. And yet somehow they did, and they haven't been able to get over this yet. So they just say, so it's much more common to say, well, it was foreign interference that, that caused um, him to win the election. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, so yeah. loudly accused. No, and you're right. And I guess what I find most bothersome about that argument is it takes away the agency of the voters. It takes away the agency of, you know, they blame Russian infiltration for Black Lives Matters, um, the, yeah. the, the pipeline protesters in, in the Dakotas. I mean, you can go down the list, and that is such and that is such a horrible argument to be making. You're basically saying that these folks can't think for themselves, and it's just garbage. I don't understand how the left is embracing this stuff. It's really bothersome to me. Yeah, um, yeah I agree. So, yeah, so speaking of Russia, uh, in the 1990s, Harvard sent several economists to Russia to sort uh, of school them in capitalism, and they ultimately were able to aid and abet the oligarchs uh, and yeah. this team was led by a professor, is it Andre Schiefler? I don't know if I'm saying Schiefler, yeah, Schiefler, yeah, that's right. Schiefler, uh, Schiefler, okay. Schiefler, Schiefler, and Andre Schiefler, yes, an old buddy of Lawrence Summers. Uh, yeah, uh, he was one of the Harvard boys that helped to, um, well, he was uh, there ostensibly to help them set up markets and, uh, and, and transform the economy to a capitalist economy. Uh, all they did was loot the country like uh, a whole bunch of um, oligarchs that emerged out of the ashes. Um, it, was a, it was a complete fiasco. Um, it created a Wild West um, form of um, bandit capitalism. Um, and, um, and Summers was a friend of this guy. It's, it's a very right. sordid part of our history. But again, uh, if you don't know that history, then you, you really, again, don't, do not understand how, um, um, you know, how Mr. Uh, why uh, the Russians feel the way they do uh, about, about the Americans. Um, you know, it's, it's just, um, it, it's, uh, again, cause and effect. And the same thing, again, in... in um, uh, the Yugoslavian War, when we uh, when we bombed Serbia against Russian objections in in the right. late 1990s, again that was their backyard. Um, contemptuously ignored them, and at that point, mm -hmm. um, I think they began to say, "Well, I'm not sure that this new partnership is is much of a new partnership." So, um, you've got uh, there we helped to create the conditions for a new Cold War. And let's not forget the, the new nuclear proliferation review, nuclear policy review that, we, that Trump just signed off on, which effectively entrenches the modernization of our nuclear deterrent, which, which Obama started uh, several years earlier. So all of these things um, are factors uh, which have um, created uh, antagonism on the other side. These things don't come in a vacuum. And that's not to justify um, the treatment of um, certain individual dissidents in, in Russia, or to say that this guy doesn't have a, a colorful right, track right. record as a KGB. But, you know, I think there has to be some balance brought into the discussion. No, I agree with you. There's no mutual exclusivity. I can disagree with many of Putin's actions, but at the same time, I can disagree with many of our country's actions. We have yeah, absolutely yeah. meddled. So for them to accuse this like whole Facebook ad thing as being like this horrible, I mean, I saw people comparing it to Pearl Harbor on Twitter for peace sake. It yeah. is right. Really? <laughs> really? I mean, it's... Um, this is Pearl Harbor. You're insane. It's, it's, uh, it's um, yeah, and the idea that, well, this, uh, I remember listening to Biden about this, you know, getting on his high horse and but how dare yeah. these people interfere in our elections? You know, I mean, that's well, let's ask the Chileans or the Australians or uh, the Italians what they think about um, CI meddling in their elections uh, or their right. political process. You know, so I mean, it's it's it, there's this historic amnesia, which is um, uh, yeah. again, m most Americans are not aware of this, uh, and I see this in the 
discussions I uh, sometimes have on Twitter or screaming matches, I guess they are there. But um, it, it's, um, uh, if, if you don't know about this stuff, then you're, gonna, it, it, you're not really going to get a full picture. And as you say, McCarthyism is a very, very uh, legitimate analogy because you've got leading Russian scholars like, for example, Stephen Cohen, uh, who right. are effectively blackballed because he won't uh, um, speak to the prevailing narrative. That's right. And it's very dangerous. I mean, here's my response is, well, the next time we decide to meddle overseas, how about we just buy 50K in Facebook ads? How about that's what we do and yeah. just cap it at that? Because yeah, we could do that, or we could do something even more radical. Um, we could just go to paper ballots, which um, um, you know, all computer experts say is, is virtually immune to um, cyber warfare. Um, that would be a good yeah, thing to do. I mean, yeah, I agree and, and you that. don't need to get anything from the Russians from that. So no, um, that's no, something that could easily be done, but of course they won't do that because uh, in our instant gratification society, they don't like the idea of using paper ballots because uh, it means it might take a full 12 hours before they get an election result uh, if they if they do that. But that's what I would do. The UK has used paper ballots for decades, and um, it hasn't uh, created any kind of problems yet. Well, it would clean up the optics of there being any problem. There's actually, there's been no evidence that the Russians manipulated any vote tallies. But if we had paper ballots, you wouldn't even have the fire to give to the other side to make this argument right. to begin with. That's because right. the perception would be completely clean. And I think we should, I think we should just do that for, for the preservation of our democracy, period. I'm, I'm a big fan of paper uh, ballots. But yeah. yeah, the idea, I mean, I actually got into an argument with, is it John Cipher, Cipher, he's the ex-CIA guy that's a uh, political commentator. I, you know, we right. were arguing with, on Twitter last week about this very thing. He was playing dumb and trying to suggest, like, well, where has the CIA engaged any... Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that, actually. And, uh, and, 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 and amazingly, um, he, 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 didn't, he wasn't aware of the overthrow of the Whitlam administration in Australia, which to me... Um, is staggering, um, and, and this guy claims to be a, a CIA expert. So, um, yeah, um, and uh, you know, ask any Italian about the um, assassination of Aldo Moro. Um, there is um, ample speculation that the CIA was involved in that because Moro wanted to go into uh, a unity government with the uh, Italian Communist Party, Berlinguer, and um, that nobody in the U.S. was supportive of having um, a, a communist. Um, Party coalition in um, the south flank of NATO. That's right. So uh, that, that never happened. That's but, right. Um, you know, and the point is that there's there's ample evidence, and of course, you know, we don't have to. You know, there's always there's Allende as well in, in Chile. So um, that's right. You know. The idea that the CIA is not engaged in any sort of regime change anywhere abroad is just. I don't know if he was being intentionally obtuse, which I'm going with, because how does he not know? Yeah. Versus, yeah, it just doesn't make sense to me. But here we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, one last question I did want to ask you about. Uh, you have the Ron right. Paul type out there, and they're they're making arguments about ending the Federal Reserve entirely. What what is your response to these guys? Well, uh, the point is that um, you need a central bank uh, to operate a, a modern uh, a monetary system. I I, I don't I, I think uh, the idea that you have to have a, a I, I think you need a central bank which is more broadly representative of a variety of interests in society, not just um, financial interests, um, because they set po their interest rate policies are applied to the whole country. So um, I, I think that there has to be a culture change within the, the Federal Reserve. But, you know, uh, if you abolish the, the Federal Reserve, and what, what are you going to replace it with? What's going to be the, uh, who's going to be the banking regulator? Who's, who, how, how do you, um, right. I, I mean, you, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a nice um, 
slogan for a bumper sticker, but I don't think it really yeah. solves the problem. <laughs> well, I don't think it's a viable alternative whatsoever. And and, no. and and attached to that is whether or not we have our currency tied to gold. And I think, uh, you know, they don't want to talk about the idea that if we did such a thing, you would have massive devaluation. And yeah, I mean, uh, gold, again, it's, 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 um, we had five depressions in the 19th century when we were on a gold standard. And, um, you know, we had the Great Depression. Right. We were still on a gold standard, and it wasn't really until until uh, FDR broke the link between uh, the fixed link between gold and the dollar that the, the U.S. had the fiscal capacity to help get us out of the uh, the, the, the crisis right. of the Great Depression. So, um, I, I I I just again these are nice little um, bumper sticker slogans. Uh, they're not real policy solutions, and um, you know these guys are nostalgic for a time that never really existed. That's right. Uh, and interesting, you bring up an interesting point in regards to FDR. It, it, this is what made the New Deal possible. It made it feasible yeah. because this had to be financed. Yeah, that's right. And and also um, the idea that his his policies actually did not do much for uh, unemployment is is actually factually incorrect. Um, the reason why the statistics uh, don't really show that, if you look at them at first glance, is because. Um, the people who were uh, incorporated into these uh, workfare programs, uh, you know, uh, under the uh, the New Deal programs, were not included as part of the. Uh, uh, they were not incorporated into the employment statistics until uh, the early 1940s. So you have this weird situation where the people who were building, um, you know, the, say the, uh, the the Tribro Bridge or the airports or the, the roads or rebuilding our country's infrastructure via these government-funded programs, were not counted as. Um, employed people. And if you did um, um, uh, put these three million or so people back into the statistics, it shows that um, Roosevelt from 32 to 36 reduced unemployment from about um, 25 percent to just under 10 percent. So it did have a remarkably effective impact. And uh, um, uh, it wasn't just the war that um, um, uh, that, that, that um, created this um, um, full employment situation, which we uh, we had by the 1940s. Right, and I think um, I think also an important turning point turning point of that period was you had his initial vice president Henry Wallace was looking to expand the New Deal to include African Americans. At initially, they were excluded from the programs, and I think to myself how different this country would be if Henry Wallace had not been replaced at the convention with Truman. What you know, what how different would our economic policy be at this particular point because he was so. He was like a, a earlier version of Bernie Sanders. He was very pro-working yeah. class reform, and yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's right. Whereas, whereas Truman, for all of his great strengths, was a um, was a great fiscal conservative. I mean, he was he yeah. was um, dragged into fiscal stimulus, kicking and screaming by virtue of the Korean War. But um, yeah, he uh, he really was very very keen on the idea of, of shrinking uh, the size of the budget right. uh, deficit, uh, and and actually. Um, created um, the economy performed very very poorly um, as a result of that um, fiscal contraction. Yeah, and I also think I, I'm going to say it. I've been criticized for saying this before, but I'm going to say this. I think Truman, at the end of the day, was a racist. I mean, if you look at some of the old videotapes where he's talking, or you listen to some of the old audio tapes, you hear him use the N word all the time, and he makes arguments that were very much founded in this uh, or founded in the Southern strategy sort of thing. And yeah, I know well, he wouldn't be the first. I mean, Wilson had a, has a, had a glorious history as well. I, I think uh, there's a whole bunch of them that uh, um, certainly, and even today, even though the Democrats are, are, are supposedly uh, 
you know, the, 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 um, they've gone beyond that. You know, to, just to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this, uh, of, of this hour, um, the, the new bill, uh, the, the Crapo bill, actually prevents uh, the Consumer Finance Protection Board from, from assessing uh, the impact of um, lending discrimination on the basis of color. They're, they're not allowed to collect data on that anymore. So, and so, so you've got Democrats that are, again, shafting their most, um, the most loyal part of their base. The reason why, for example, Doug Jones won in Alabama, um, they're, they're, they're not doing a thing for them uh, in, in, in return. Right. They're, they're just um, uh, helping bankers. Most of them probably supported the other side. You know what? That's a very salient point. I didn't realize that that was part of the Crapo bill. That's actually yeah. very detrimental. And Doug Jones is supporting this bill, is he not? Yes, he is. Uh, there's about 17 right now, and uh, um, uh, he's one of them. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and again, he'll probably he'll probably look. I admit he's renting the seat. He'll probably lose it in 2020. Um, um, so my he's feeling renting. is, why don't you why don't you just do the right thing since you're only going to be there for a couple of years anyway? But I, I agree. Um, so what parting words do you have for our audience? Well, I guess my parting words are, I'm sorry if I sound so depressing, but um, you know, if you, want a, if you want a happy ending, go watch a Disney movie. There's lots of them out in California, aren't there? So, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I hope that, um, yeah, I, I know they say it's always darkest before the dawn. I, I, I do think we are close to a paradigm shift, but it may take um, one more crisis before we get there. Indeed, and to be fair, economics is considered the dismal science. Yes, a lot of us are pretty dismal people, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming on. This has been a very informative conversation, um, and we'll have to have you on again. Sure, I'd love to. I hope your, uh, your listeners enjoy it.